here that we can worship the Lord. It is a Christmas message. I will not, however, be reading the normal text that you may normally see on a Christmas day. Some of the illustrations and pictures that are seen and maybe some of these songs that the children sang, maybe even represented in a couple of the Christmas songs that we sang, some of the, the thoughts of wise men and camels and gifts and the angelic chorus and the shepherds and the manger and all those things, all those things that accompany the Christmas story, we're going to kind of strip all that down today and get down to the crux of what Christmas is. The theological, if you will, the, the, the deep-rooted thing that God is doing in what we celebrate as Christmas. And we're going to draw that out from, from John chapter 1. I will tell you this. Let me just warn you. Please stay very close behind me as I lead you through this message because we're going to meander just a little bit. Okay? Now, I don't care for meandering if, I, if you lose me in the meandering. Okay? But just hang close with me. Okay? We're going to look at a, a, a few things that if you just pay close attention, it will make sense. But if maybe you, you're distracted for a couple of minutes, you might get lost. But just hang with me, hold tight, and I want to lead us into something that I believe the Lord has led me to. If He will help me to, to preach this, to make this real to our hearts, um, I know that it will impact your life. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Read it once more. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now very quickly, go over to Matthew 1. Go over to Matthew 1. And, and truly, that song that, that Wendy just sang, I didn't know what song she was singing. I just learned this, this morning. My dad told me she's going to sing a special song. I didn't know what song it was. I don't, I don't know that I've ever heard that song. But that song goes perfectly, goes perfectly with the specific subject matter I want to deal with and, and what I want to draw out from these texts here today. Matthew 1 and 1. Now, again, I'm not going to be reading about any mangers or wise men or the inn or Bethlehem. These are my only two texts. We're going to start with the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah, and his brothers, Judah begot Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Now, I told you to stay close. Stay close with me. You've got to watch it. Ram begot Abinadab. Abinadab begot Nation. 
And Nashon begot Salmon. It's coming. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Everybody say Rahab. By Rahab. And Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. The title this afternoon is The Word Became Flesh. Very simply, The Word Became Flesh. Pray with me, Lord. I pray that you would help me, God, to expound your truth, your truth which is life, which is transforming, which is manifested in your Son, Jesus Christ, the very embodiment of truth. Help us to be people of the truth who hear your voice here today, God. Make these revelatory scriptures real in a very intimate way in every person's life, God. Not just a story. This is not just a fairy tale story that's way off, far in a distance, but it can be a reality in our lives. The transforming work of the Son of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. The Albuquerque Journal on May 31st, 1952 reads this. Ralph R. Higginbotham Born 1922, died 1952. Funeral services were slated today at 3 o'clock this afternoon in Hatch for Ralph Higginbotham, 32-year-old Donna Anna County Deputy Sheriff, this is New Mexico, who died in in a Memorial Day shooting. The services were slated at St. John's Methodist Church in Hatch, New Mexico, and Reverend Donald Sims officiated. State Senator James Brewer will assist. Higginbotham and a fellow officer, Town Marshal Guy F. Donovan of Hatch, were cut down in a volley of gunfire when they stopped the defendant's car at the outskirts of Hatch, New Mexico. Donovan is recovering from a shoulder wound. Officers said that the defendant has a few days in which to obtain an attorney or face preliminary on first-degree murder. He has vainly sought an attorney to represent him since he pleaded innocent at arraignment here Saturday. Higginbotham died at a local hospital after he was wounded at least three times from a 45 caliber automatic pistol. The defendant was admitted, has admitted ownership of the 45 caliber pistol in his possession when arrested near Cabello Lake. The young officer was survived by his widow, Dorothy, and three children. Now you may ask, Stephen, why are you sharing with me a news article from the Albuquerque Journal dated May 31st, 1952, and apparently sharing with me this random occurrence that happened in New Mexico? Well, I am related to this story. Though I was, I was born... Some 40, 50 years later, this story affects me. Because the defendant, the man who shot and killed a deputy who was 32 32 years old and left a wife and children behind and wounded another deputy, that defendant, his name was James Oliver Morgan. And he was my great-grandfather. He was the father to my dad and my Uncle Kenny, to Edwin Morgan. Sadly, James Oliver Morgan was never a father to my grandfather, Edwin, because he abandoned 
his wife and his child when my grandfather was six months old. And sadly, you saw uh, the results of his life in that at the period of 1952, he gets in some sort of altercation with deputies in this county of New Mexico, and he ends up shooting and killing a deputy. He claims self-defense. We don't know the full story, but he served something like 10 to 15 years in jail and eventually got out and lived the remainder of his life somewhere near El Paso. My grandfather made attempts to reach out to him, to, to have a, a relationship with him, and really to reach out to him on a spiritual basis to try to reach him for the Lord, but he never had a relationship with him. Never had a relationship with him. And I recently came across, or not recently, but within the last decade, if you will, when I began to show interest in my family and in my ancestry and in my genealogy, I would begin to ask my dad questions. Who was your dad's parents, and where did they live, and where did your dad grow up? And I would ask my, my mom the same things, and my grandma, Charlotte, would share things about her family, and, and my, my grandfather, David, would share things about his family and I, as I asked them. And, and as time goes by, these events are far, far, more and more far removed from, from the current day. And so you want to ask questions and figure out, where did I come from? Who, who are these people that I got my name from? Who, who was my grandfather? Who was my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather? And you wonder these things. And there is a whole website called Ancestry.com. Anybody ever used it? Ancestry.com. I first initially used it because as a land man, you're looking for people. You're trying to track down people. And it becomes very handy in trying to determine family trees and who kids are and who parents are. And it's become very handy in my line of work. But I began to show some interest in my own ancestry. And if you were to go to my Ancestry.com account, you would see a huge amount of research that I have done. And what Ancestry.com does is it compiles from thousands of databases throughout the entire country, from newspaper articles to census records to, to war drafts, that goes back all the way to the 18 and 1700s. It compiles all this and puts it into one local place and allows you to easily find it. It's, it's a, a medium by which it aggregates all this data and allows you as the user to find the information concerning your very self. And so I have created all these family trees from my mom's side, maternally and paternally, from my dad's side, maternally and paternally. And so through this process of asking questions and sowing interest, I learned about James Oliver Morgan. And when you do research, how many of you have ever talked to somebody, you're talking about family members, ancestors, and they say, such and such was my great, great, great grandfather. And they were some notable person. They were met have been some famous person. They're notable for doing something that people recognized and you're pretty proud of that. Anybody ever had that experience? I've got George Washington in my ancestry. We'd be pretty proud of that, wouldn't we? I've got Albert Einstein in my ancestry. And though you don't know these individuals, it may be a famous musician, actor, political figure, and though you don't know these individuals, you are proud that some way, somehow, because of some very distant relative, you are related some way. And you're proud of this. And if I were to say 
I'm proud of who my great-grandfather was, it would be a lie. I never knew the man. I have nothing to brag about when it comes to him. It's a very sad story, isn't it? Very, very sad story. But when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, when you look at all of the generations that led up to the Son of God being born, there are some checkered pasts, if you will. There are some um, bad people, if you will, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so while we would be proud of our pedigree, what about the bad people in our pedigree? The bad people in our ancestry. If you were to continue to read the ancestry of Jesus, you would see that Abraham, while he was a man who made a covenant with God, he still took matters into his own hands by lying with Hagar and producing Ishmael. Jacob was a deceiver and a thief. Judah sold his brother Joseph into slavery and committed adultery with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. King David espoused um, as the greatest king to ever rule over the J Jewish people, committed adultery and murdered a man. King Solomon, who had the most great amount of wisdom that any man ever had, and was represented in the way that the Lord blessed him. At the end of his life, his heart was turned toward idols because of the many wives that he loved. And King Ahaz offered his own son as a fire sacrifice to pagan gods. All these individuals are in the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus, including one of four Gentile women, a woman named Rahab. And this woman Rahab was a prostitute from the pagan city of Jericho. As I said, <coughs> she's only one of four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, and at that, all four of those women are Gentiles. They're not even Jews. And so when you look at the life of Rahab, you wonder, once you realize what her story is and you read Joshua chapter 2, you wonder, how did this woman, how did this woman become a part of such a huge point of history? That she was actually the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus in the natural, in the physical. How did this happen? How did this happen? Remember, hang tight with me. Hang tight with me. And so when you look at Joshua chapter 2, where Joshua sent out the spies across the river, they went to Jericho, and Rahab being a prostitute, although she was a prostitute, she took in these two spies because the people or the, the, the soldiers of the town of Jericho were looking for these two spies and Rahab gave them safe harbor. She rescued them from the soldiers of that city and she hid them upon her rooftop. And she, and she was a, the Bible makes it very clear, she was a prostitute and she lived in the wall of the city. Jericho was known for its immense walls that chariots could drive on top of. It was impenetrable. They had a huge, huge wall surrounding the city. The Bible says that she lived in that wall and that she was a prostitute. But she, she had something in her that allowed her to identify who God was. She was in a pagan society. She was a prostitute herself. She came from a broken background. 
and absolute darkness and sin, but there was something in her that allowed her to have some sort of receptivity to the true God of the universe. And before, before she saves these two spies in Joshua chapter 2, the Bible says that she asked these two men to make a promise to her. Okay? Again, bear with me. And here's what she says. Here's what she says to the two spies. She knows that they have, have been conquering nations and doing things and the Lord is with them and she's fearful for her own life. But this is how a prostitute woman responds to these two men. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This is a pagan prostitute who does not have the law of God and she understands and realizes that the God of these people is the true and living God. And all of her people and her family and the people of that inhabitants, their hearts have melted within them because they knew as other people have been destroyed, we are now in their sights. And she, with something within her heart, a receptivity to the things of God, to the true God in living God, she says, I know this to be true, that you are of the God, the living God. And she says this, Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that are, uh, I have and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, last verse, our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. How did a Gentile woman who's a prostitute end up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? That is the beginning of it right there. That's the beginning of it right now. And when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, Rahab's presence in this genealogy can reveal some wonderful lessons for us that we can apply to ourselves just looking at it on its face. On the one hand, we see that God can transform anyone and can use anyone because He shows no partiality. That's an immediate application we can take from the life of Rahab. Of all people, a Gentile prostitute is a great-grandmother of the Messiah. We can see that God will use anybody and can transform anybody because His kindness and His mercy is great and He shows no partiality. But on the other hand, when you look at all these individuals in the genealogy of Jesus, you see the immense presence of sinful human beings in the Messiah's genealogy. You, by the same token, you see what kind of person she was. And including Rahab, this highlights the inadequacy of mere humans and the utter necessity that sinful humanity 
find a Savior. Was King David the people's Savior? No, he failed. Was King Solomon the people's Savior? No, he failed. Every prophet was imperfect. Every single person in this genealogy is a sinner. Did God use them despite? Yes, but none of them was the Savior. Every single one of them were a part of these generations leading up to the Messiah. But the fact that God has these sinful individuals and that they themselves were not the cure, were not the remedy, were not the Savior, but every one of these generations was leading up to something, to someone, to the promise. It's an indication. It's an indication that these people needed a Savior. So you have this on both hands, but I want to draw this out. And here's where I'm making the correlation of John 1.14 and Rahab and the genealogy of Jesus. Okay, The presence of Rahab, however, and others in the genealogy of Jesus reveals most magnificently something of the nature of God and the heart of Jesus. It's this. Listen closely. It highlights the humility and condescending nature of Jesus the Son of God, who would allow Himself to be the product in the natural realm of sinful human beings in order to make entry into the world which He came to save as Lord and Savior. Think about that. He came through all of these messed up people. The three generations, these three it's, it's three segments of 14 generations that led up to Jesus. And every single person was sinful. Every single person was imperfect. Every single person had fallen short of the glory of God. And God used these people. And, and God still, despite their sin, used them. But what's so amazing is that God allowed Himself in the natural, being born of man, to be produced from such brokenness. Think about that. That He didn't just come into being as a 30-year-old man. He came into the world. He took on the form of a fetus inside Mary's womb and grew and grew and grew for nine months. He constrained Himself, the God of the universe, the One who hung the stars in the sky. He constrained Himself to being in the womb of Mary for nine months. The God of the universe who had made Mary is now inside her womb. And He condescended that much so that He could meet us at our point of need. He came and lived the human life, the human experience amongst broken, sinful people so that He could save you. So that He could save you. And so, Rahab is a picture of one who has been a beneficiary of the grace and mercy and the truth of God. It's, it's ironic that she, through her womb, had given birth to Jesus through multiple generations before, but that she was preserved. She was saved by faith in her grandson in the natural. You understand? In the natural. She and all the Old Testament saints are looking forward to this covenant promise that God made with Abraham. And all of them are placing their faith 
in this major, major promise that the promise, the Messiah, the Christ is going to come and be the final Savior of the people of Israel. And all of these people, though they're literally in the genealogy of Jesus, they themselves, those who are righteous, who place their faith in Jehovah, they were preserved by the grace of God, by faith in the coming Christ, who, who would so happen to be their great, 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 great grandson in the natural, in the physical. That is just astounding to me. And of course, every single one of us are looking back at Jesus and placing our faith in Him, looking back. But everybody in the Old Testament is looking forward. And He is the moment in time that divides, that brings the, great, the greatest occurrence of history where God became flesh and dwelt among us in this immediate context. It's, a, it's astounding. It's astounding to me that He would so choose to do this. So now, go back with me to John chapter 1 and let me bring it down from here and, and, and really make the personal application to our lives. And I will bring Rahab back into this. But go back to John 1.14. Oftentimes when you get a Christmas card, the Christmas card that you get is, is one of two cards. It is, it is a card of somebody's family that says Merry Christmas. It's a, it's a picture of the family, a photo shoot they've taken outside with festive Christmas colors on, maybe some, some flannel, there are maybe in front of some Christmas trees, and it says Merry Christmas from such and such family. That's one type of Christmas card you may get. Another Christmas card is, is another card that may have the nativity scene on the front of the Christmas card, and the inside it may something have a scripture or say something of Christ's birth, or some sort of Christmas scripture associated with this time of year. And those are generally the two kind of cards that you get. And in those, those cards that have the nativity scene, it has all those things, as I mentioned earlier, surrounding the Christmas narrative, okay? But, but truly, all those things are merely supporting actors, supporting narrative to what is really happening in Christmas, and if you wanted to, to boil down Christmas to the most simplistic of terms and the most simple theological understanding of what Christmas is, what Advent is, it's this. It's John 1.14. It is four words. The Word became flesh. That is Christmas. That is Christmas. So John 1.14 is just as Christmas as Matthew 1 and Luke 1. The Word became flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. That is what we are celebrating. Not Frank, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Not the angelic chorus. Not the shepherds at night. Not any of those things. Those are things that surround the biggest thing that has ever happened. God became flesh. The Word has become flesh. And so John chapter 1 maybe is neglected a little bit during this time of year. But it's just as theologically Christmas as any other narrative, if you will. And I want to bring this application to our lives from John 1.14. And I will bring Rahab back into this. But the Word, look at 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we beheld his, his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Has anybody ever studied the Word? Why is Jesus called the Word in this? Why, of all things, would John say the Word in relation to Christ? Why would he call Jesus the Word? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Oftentimes when you read a Scripture, if there is no definition or explanation of the Scripture, oftentimes the one who is writing the book or writing the verse, writing the chapter, the person used of the Holy Spirit to write that portion of the Bible, it is understood that the audience he is writing to understands what they're saying. And so there's a reason that John doesn't explain explicitly to, you, explicitly to us why he is calling Jesus the Word. Because his audience, both Greek and and Jew would have understood what he was saying. Because what he was saying that would be understood by the Greek was this. That Greek word for word is logos. L-O-G-O-S. That's the Greek word in the original manuscripts which the Bible was written. It is the word logos. And that means word. And Greeks would read this and they would completely understand what John was attempting to say because in the Greek world of philosophy and religion, the logos, okay, in Greek philosophy, it was a really well-known word. In this Greek philosophy, logos was believed to be a title given to the creative force, to the ordering, intelligent mind of the universe. Logos would be used to describe in the Greek philosophy the <clears throat> intermediate agency by which God created material things and communicated with them. It was, the word was a bridge, if you will, between the transcendent God and the material universe. This was in Greek philosophy, that there was this intelligent designer, though they had not given true form to him as the God of the Old Testament, there was this concept of a logos by which was the bridge between this transcendent God and the material universe. And this is what Greek philosophy had. It was redundant throughout Greek philosophy. This understanding, this idea of logos. Okay? And so the Greek-speaking audience that is reading this would understand immediately of the link that he's trying to make. And even more so, the Jewish audience would understand even more. To the Jews, the word of the Lord was a very familiar idea. How many of you in reading the Old Testament you see continually, and the word of the Lord came to, and the Lord of the Lord is, and the Lord, word of the Lord came to so and so. The word of the Lord, which is God's revelation given to men of the Old Testament, the word of the God is the manifestation, it's the revelation of God's character given to men through the written scriptures. God himself has revealed himself to men through these scriptures that we call the Word of the Lord. The Word of the Lord was simply God revealing Himself, His person, His nature, His will, His wisdom, His truth. The Word of the Lord was the expression of the personal God, the true and living God of the Old Testament. Furthermore, when you have a thought in your mind, that thought is never manifested, or the thoughts and meditations of your heart are never manifested until it comes out of your mouth until it's expressed from your person. And in the same sense, not that Jesus was a thought in the mind of God, because Jesus, we learn from verse 1, He was co-eternal and existent with God. 
He always was and was with God, and by him all things were made. But it is that he is the absolute manifestation of the word of God in human form. He is, as Hebrews chapter 1 says, who at various times, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory in the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. To say that Jesus is the word, and that the word became flesh, is to say that Jesus was the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. He was God incarnate. God with us. And so there's a, 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 a rich historical context and grammatical context that goes with the understanding of why John would have said the Word. The Word became flesh. But I want you to know that John 1.14 is one of the scandalous things that John could have ever penned. One of the most scandalous things that anyone could have ever penned. Because when you say that a transcendent, all-eternal, all-powerful, non-conforming God has taken on flesh, you are flipping everything upside down. You are flipping everything upside down. Because in the ancient world, it was common to understand that God was perfect, not material, completely separate from creation. And this world that we live in today, this created world, this world of matter, this world of flesh is lesser, it's defective. It's far from God. And the amazing mystery is that God chose to interject Himself into society, into human existence and human history, and to take on human flesh. And not just any human flesh, but in the context of Matthew chapter 1, with all those messed up people. That's one of the most scandalous things you could say, that God became a man. And even more so scandalous, when, when Paul was preaching to the people in Athens, when he said, and God died and rose again, they thought he was crazy. Thought he was crazy. Christianity turns everything upside down in our understanding of who we believe God to be and what His nature and what His heart is. And so it was an immensely scandalous thing for John to say that God became flesh. And not only did He become flesh, what we see in the Gospel of John, we discover that He is not simply a human who was representing God. This is extremely important for you to understand. Jesus was not just a representative for God. He was one who was presenting God. It's a huge difference. He was not merely a messenger of God as Islam says. He was not merely another good prophet. He was not near, merely another good rabbi representing God, Yahweh. He was God being presented to us in human flesh. God incarnate. God with us. And it is in John's Gospel that the point of contact where divine reality and creaturely life, they meet. And Jesus, 2,000 years ago, made the decision 
to interject himself into human history, not just generalized history, but he wants to interject himself into your history, into your story. He wants to interject his grace and his mercy and his truth into your family tree and change everything. That despite your past, despite your addictions of the past, despite the bondage and the brokenness and the sin and the depression and all the horrible places he's taken you from, he can turn your life around. Not because you went through steps, not because you tried harder, but because Jesus has come into your life. This baby changes everything. He changes everything. And he so cho chose to do that. Not to come and live at a distance. But he comes to be intimate. To know you. And that you would know him. To know him. That is the reality of Christmas. The word became flesh. He dwelt amongst us. But most importantly, he wants to dwell in you. Because you're messed up. I'm messed up, just like Rahab, just like King David, just like all the other people in Jesus' genealogy. We're all messed up. And yet, He still came. While we were dead in our trespasses and sin, He who is righteous died for the unrighteous. Because God is rich and abundant in mercy, and He loves you. He loves you. And so He came. Not because you were anything great, not because you were worth saving, because he merely loves you. And that is how abundant his grace is. That's how abundant his mercy is. That's how abundant his loving kindness is. And so God became flesh and dwelt among us. Look there at verse 14. He dwelt among us. What does that mean? That word literally means tabernacle. The understanding is that he took up residence in a tent. And this is an illusion. It's hailing back to the Old Testament where in Exodus 20 that they created the tabernacle of meeting. And it was God's manifest presence that would descend upon this tabernacle. This temporary tent that they would travel around and set up. And God would meet with Moses. And all the people would come out to their tent and worship and watch Moses go into this tabernacle of meeting. And it's not by accident that John used this terminology. He says he came and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. God's manifest presence was seen in the person of Jesus Christ here and now. And now you can meet and walk into the presence of God, not through a tent, not through a geographical place or a mountain, but through the person of Jesus Christ. It was there in the innermost holy of holies on the day of atonement that the high priest would enter. And there between the cherubim on top of the mercy seat on top of the ark is where the manifest presence of God would show himself. The law being inside of the ark of the covenant and his His glory or the cloud of his glory showing himself in the middle of these cherubim and the high priest would take the blood and sprinkle it and sprinkle it to make atonement for the people and all of this was speaking to something greater every bit of this was speaking to something greater everything of the old testament all of the old testament law all of the all the implements all of the tabernacle, everything that it represented was pointing to something greater, to something better. It was pointing to this point in time. It was pointing to a baby who nobody would ever think was God. 
would never think it was anything. It's a scandal. And yet God did it. And so He tabernacled amongst us. He manifested His glory in the person of Jesus Christ who is the brightness of God's glory. The express image of His person. And not only that, but then we beheld His glory. It's God's desire that you would behold the glory of Jesus Christ. Again, not from a distance. It is God's intention that you would know Him intimately and see His glory. They, of course, saw His glory in the Mount of Transfiguration in the sense of a glorified body, temporarily glorified. James, Peter, John saw that in the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah and Abraham showed up. But more than that, we beheld His glory. It means this. Glory means brightness or splendor. But glory is more than an image of honor, okay? It means magnificence, awesomeness, wonder. It means those things, splendor and brightness. But glory is more than an image of honor, for it is used to refer to God's revealed character. Listen closely. We beheld His glory. It means, it means that God has revealed His character specifically in association with His gracious mercy as seen correlatively in Moses' interaction with Jehovah in Exodus chapter 33. Does this phrase sound familiar? Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Who said that? Somebody tell me. Moses. In Exodus chapter 33, where the stiff-necked people had rebelled against God, and God said, I'm not gonna, my presence is not going to go with you. I'm going to send an angel. Moses intercedes on his behalf, on behalf of the people. He says, if I can find grace in your sight, please go with us. He said, because you have found, I have found you have found grace in my sight. I will go up with you. And then Moses wanted something more. He said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And this is how God responded. Jehovah responded. Again, hang with me. I'm coming back to Rahab. This is how God responded in Exodus 33:17. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then furthermore, in chapter 34, verse 5, it says this, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, stood with Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Here's the name of the Lord. Here is the express Nature, the, 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 the character of God describing himself. This is the name of the Lord. This is God, the I am, the existent, the eternal existing God. Here's how he describes himself. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. He was just about to destroy the people of Israel because they had rebelled against Him and they deserved it. 
But His nature at His core is to pour out mercy and not judgment. And it is at the point of grace where Moses found gracious, found grace in the sight of God. It was at this point of finding grace in the sight of God, falling and humbling Himself, that the Lord was gracious and long-suffering. And not just that He showed that, but He expressed, this is who I am. This is who the Lord is. This is my name. This is who I am. I'm bringing this to a close here in a moment. And so, how does John 1.14 close? It says this. We beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me is preferred before Me, for He was before Me. 16. And of His fullness we have received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The relation between Jesus Christ and Moses and the law is one of fulfillment. The graciousness of God revealed in Scripture has now been perfectly manifested in Jesus Christ. The Word made flesh who dwells amongst us. And so the Word Jesus became flesh in order to bear witness to the truth and offer grace through His blood via His sacrificial death on the cross. That is Christmas. He came so that He might die for you because He is a gracious and loving God. And while we deserve judgment and we deserve hell, He'd rather pour out mercy before judgment. And so He poured out judgment upon His Son, upon that cross. And Jesus endured the life of the flesh. One who had hung the stars in the skies, allowing people to pluck His beard and slap Him and, and whip Him and nail Him to a cross. He's allowing this because God's nature is humility and He is attracted to humility. He's attracted to brokenness. And God Himself condescended Himself to the very point of death upon the cross. What was it that saved Rahab? The last thing that the two spies told her was this. She let them out of her window through the wall and they said, put out a scarlet cord so that we may know, basically, you are marked. That we will not destroy this household. And this scarlet cord coming out of this window of this particular household, every single person that is in this household, get all of your family members, all of your, your sons and your daughters and your, your aunts and your uncles and your parents, get everybody that is in there, we will not destroy them. Because that scarlet cord this crimson red cord is hanging out of 
the window. And we will know, do not touch this place. Do not touch this place. Because this woman has come into contact with the living God. And not just His great glory and magnificence, but she has experienced His mercy and His grace. And because God is gracious and merciful, that is His nature, she and all of her household shall be preserved. And this scarlet cord, of course, it speaks of the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a scarlet cord starting at the very beginning of time in which Jesus or which God made a covenant with Abraham, a blood covenant. And every single period of time, every covenant, every piece of the law, every implement of the tabernacle, everything was a scarlet cord leading us through the Old Testament. There's a scarlet cord leading through us through every narrative that leads us all the way to the foot of the cross. There's a scarlet cord that leads us throughout the entirety of the Word of God and ends at Jesus Christ, who is the express image of His glory. The brightness of God. The express image of God. It is at this point of our great need and brokenness and sin that God Himself comes and says, I will be gracious and merciful. I will be gracious and merciful. If you could come help me, please. And so Rahab, one of four Gentile women, is honored in the genealogy of Christ. She's honored in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. She is honored as one who was obedient in James chapter 2 where faith without works is dead and she is honored for her obedience and her works by faith and she is honored throughout the New Testament. But it's not because she was great and anything we, we can accomplish and anything that we can be patted on the back for is not because we are great, it's because God is gracious and He is loving and it started because a baby came into the world who was God incarnate. He took on human flesh because He wants to dwell in your midst. He wants to dwell in your life and be intimately acquainted with it. Rahab's name, the name of her, the meaning of her name is insolence or pride. It doesn't matter what your past is, it doesn't matter what your name is, it doesn't matter what the devil has proclaimed over you, it doesn't matter of your past, God can make you into a new creation through His Son. He can do that if one would simply humble themselves and receive this free gift of salvation. Would you stand with me?